But how, how many assets did you have under management? We were at a billion dollars in uh, invested capital when we... Okay. Which also, I mean, coming back to your argument about, it's a lot of money to throw around. By yeah. the way, I met him through a weird set of coincidence when I was just out of business school. Very funny. Oh, you met Jordan Belford? He interviewed <laughs> me. I didn't even know it was him. <laughs> but um, he wasn't really a hedge fund, by the way. Hey everyone, Ben here and welcome to Motivation to Invest. Today we're going to be joined by a legendary former hedge fund manager, Large Croger, and he's also the author of two books on investing. We've got Investing Demystified and Confessions of a Hedge Fund Manager. So Lars is incredibly well educated with an MBA from Harvard Business School. And in this video, Lars is going to give us some insight into what it's like managing a hedge fund and hopefully some investing tips to help you guys get great returns in the market. Okay. But how, how many assets did you have under management approximately? Well, so we were at a we were at a billion dollars in uh, invested capital when we... Okay. Which also, I mean, coming back to your argument, how much could you do per person? How many trades can you really claim to understand well? I mean, I see some people that sit alone with their portfolio and they're long 30 different stocks. That's 30 situations where you're buying and selling stocks versus people that you know are incredibly well resourced informed have the best data best access to information for each of those stocks because they might only do two or three each mm. and you're sitting in your bedroom in your boxer shorts and access to the internet and i think it's for me it comes back to this like well what do you know that the world doesn't know what insight is it that you have that whoever is selling you that share that you're buying doesn't have and I think for a lot of people that start out in investing, there isn't a good enough answer to that. And, um, and that's why I, I, I think for a lot of people, it's a fool's errand if I'm being harsh. You know, I, 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 I did feel perhaps a little bit privileged, but you know a lot of really, really smart people that are, that are incredibly well-resourced and access to great information, technology, what have you. And even for them, it's incredibly hard to beat the market. Like, like Wolf of Wall Street. And By yeah. the way, I met him through a weird set of coincidence when I was just out of business school. Very funny. Oh, you met Jordan Belford? He interviewed <laughs> me. I didn't even know it was him. <laughs> but um, he wasn't really a hedge fund, by the way. First of all, oh, he yeah, he was a brokerage, wasn't he? Yeah, and a fraud, right? Let's not, let's yeah, not yeah. I read somewhere that you, 2013, during financial crisis, 10 million lost in a single day uh, we, we lost way more money than that i'm very oh really <laughs> you know what, what so what i did at my fund but this is a while ago now. yeah like what what was the strategy yeah, you can so elaborate on that it comes back to the very first thing i said about hedging things that you didn't think you control so i was what you call a market neutral special situations fund so essentially what that meant was that i tried to create uh, returns for the investors that in no way was correlated to your markets, interest rates, currencies, anything you can think of. So that it was uh, what you can, the terminology is pure alpha. Mm. In other words, pure value added. So if I told you in a year, you make 10% investing with me, that didn't suggest that the markets were up eight or 10 or 15 or minus 30. Mm -hmm. There was no rhyme or reason. Now, if you think about that from a Let's just say that was true, except for a second that, that was true. That it was completely uncorrelated, and I gave you 10% of you. Essentially, the holy grail of investing, because 
what you could do is you could take 10 funds just like me that are not only uncorrelated to the markets or currencies or what have you, but also uncorrelated to each other. Whatever the volatility of the, each individual fund, you pretty much guarantee 10% a year. Mm -hmm. Now, if you have something that pretty much guarantees 10% a year, you should go to the bank and borrow money, all the money you can, at 2 or 3% a year or 5%, it doesn't really matter. Invest it at 10% and you have an amazing arbitrage profit, right? So you sort of say, well, why, why doesn't that argument work? And the reason it works is because those 10% are often 10% until it's not. And it tends to be not 10% when the markets crash. Mm -hmm. And when the markets crash, all those uncorrelated investments tend to correlate. Yeah. <laughs> Mine didn't actually, but, it, but that was sort of besides the point because as long as all your investors, other investments all correlate, then yeah. result is the same. But it's a super interesting way of investing because, you know, I remember my mom would always call, call me up and say, oh, what, what stock should I buy? And I would tell her, oh, if you buy this thing and short that thing, you'd be like, no, 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 I just want to, you know, buy great companies. And, and it kind of didn't make sense to her, this whole idea that you're sort of betting against companies because they're trading at the wrong, or betting against securities and companies because they're trading at the wrong price. Mm -hmm. But it's certainly, a, you know, it's a fascinating space. It was also just, I got into it because I was very interested in the math and I, I'd written my um, thesis on, on options theory. So I knew that part of the business quite well. When you look at the last decade, and you say, well, who have done the best out of the big fund managers? It's been, frankly, the ones that haven't hedged very much. And, and part of the reason for that is because the markets have gone not mm. up in a straight line, but uh, you know, except for a short hiccup around COVID, it's pretty much been one long bull run um, driven by you know, standing success in technology unprecedented generations back, success in technology. Now, will that continue? Who knows? If you, if you have the answer to that, you shouldn't be talking to me. You should go <laughs> do whatever the answer is, right? Um, but so the funds that have done really, really well are the ones that bought things that went up 10 times, not the ones that eat that through clever or not clever hedging strategies, eat that 10, 12% a year. Mm -hmm. That's not... That's not where you made the big bucks. So if you're talking about the hedge funds today that are running $50 billion, they're not hedged. They're not hedged, you know, to be, um, to the extent that hedge funds traditionally were. Do you have, if I'm trying to break it down simply for the, for the viewers watching, did you have, say, a basket of, let's say, 10, 20, 30 stocks that you were really bullish on, which were going to go up, and then a basket of 10, 20 stocks shorted, yeah, this is where it gets a little boring. So what we would yeah. do is we often find stocks. It wasn't only stocks, but if we talk about stocks um, that were highly correlated but mispriced relative to each other. Take as an example an insurance company where you say, well, you know, in man, you have an if you insure your car. The way that works is you you pay an insurance company five hundred pounds, and then on average they pay you, you know, across many policies, maybe four hundred and fifty back in. In, in payouts and then 50 in, in uh, admin of all of that. And then there's a profit from the investment return in the interim. So if you look at the balance sheet of an insurance company, they have an insurance business and then they have what they did with all the money before they paid it out. You know, that's sort of simplistically mm -hmm. said. So man, you could take a situation where you could buy the insurance company and hedge all the underlying holdings that they held.
and you can get an implicit value of just the insurance part of the business, not the, the assets that they hold. Mm. And, 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 or you could do the opposite. You can short the insurance companies and go along the underlying holdings. And so what you're doing there is actually quite intricate because you have to figure out exactly what this company is and what belongs to the policyholders, what belongs to the company. But you can get some really quirky valuations where, you know, the value of an insurance company went up by 10% in the same time period as the holdings went down by 20%, but that might imply a 5x difference in the value of the underlying insurance business. Then you look at what happened to the underlying insurance business in the interim, and if the answer is nothing, that's a mispricing. Mm-hmm. We'd be the kind of investors that would try to exploit that. Yeah. And so it's not like that we would love Vodafone and, yeah, you know, Microsoft, but hated Facebook and Google. It's not, yeah. that's not the kind of stuff that we did, ah. which is also coming back to my mom. It, you know, imagine telling her that. <laughs> it sounds a little sexy or a little less sexy. Like you're an investing surgeon. Like you're really intricate trying to. Say- I think that's giving us too much credit. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I think, but it, in my mind, it comes back to like be very specific about what is it that you know, right? And what is it that you don't know? Then a typical example would be, you know, let's say you have a bank. We were invo- involved with a bank that owned uh, one of Italy's largest insurance. We didn't actually do that much insurance, but that's not why I keep bringing it up. But Involved, owned one of a big share of one of Italy's largest insurance companies. It's so interesting talking to people about, you know, what do you think the value of this bank is? And they say, oh, I think it's cheaper. I think it's expensive. And then you say, well, what do you think the value of this insurance company is? And they'd be like, oh, I don't, I don't follow it. And I'd be like, but it's like 60% of the value of the business. How can you not have a view? To which I'd always say, well, then hedge it, make it go away. So you buy 10 euros worth of the stock and short six euros worth of the insurance company. And now you paid four euros for the bank. Is that cheap or expensive? Well, then that's the real analysis. Fascinating. But again, it's very, very different from making statements like Tesla is going to triple the next three years. It's a very different great businesses that's going to impact life around us. Like Tesla, right? Mm. You can love it or hate it, but it's, it's, yeah. It's incredible what they've done. Yeah. And it might be 10 times too expensive or should be worth 10 times more. But sure, a lot of people on my street driving Teslas, right? That weren't yeah. driving Teslas 10 years ago. So, um, and, and polluting less while they're doing it. Yeah, there's a lot of that move towards ethical investing and investing into companies which are doing well for the planet. And it's that whole millennial shift. People want to invest into those companies. People are sort of taking sides of companies like, no, I'm not going to invest into an oil company even if it's trading, let's say below fair value and there could be gains, people just won't invest into them, even big institutional funds. So that's quite an interesting area. And so for me, the very, very first question any investor should ask is, can you beat the market? Like, and and why and how? And for the overwhelming majority of retail investors, the answer is you cannot. And then the next question should be, what should you do with your investments on the basis of that premise? And, and, you know, the answer, the long and short answers, but um, you still shouldn't put it onto your mattress, right? Yeah. But you should, in stock markets, you should buy index trackers. You should buy the broadest, cheapest, most tax efficient index tracker you can get your hands on. And, and that's not very sexy or exciting. But if you cannot beat the market, 
That's what you should do. Otherwise, you're paying unnecessary fees. Uh, you're probably being tax inefficient. Um, you might be making uh, other people rich, you know. Or you could then say, well, why don't I give my money to a, a, one of these investment funds that you see all over the, the billboards that have done so well the last decade, Fidelity or what they're all called. Statistically speaking, it's about 15% of those funds outperform an index over a decade, right? And the reason is simple, right? They, through the fees and expenses and everything else, it might be one and a half percent of costs a year that they have to exceed. And you think, well, that's not a lot, but it adds up over the long run. So I know that's not like maybe what your listeners want to hear because this, you yeah. know, this is different, but I think, I think it's a, even if you disagree, if you think I'm an idiot, at least answer that question. Yeah. What is it that you know? Image in your head of someone who plays golf with Mark Zuckerberg and who went to Harvard with him and worked in technology and sits on the board of various technology firms at in Silicon Valley, are in the flow of data and new things and new trends and new everything. And that's the person that's selling you that technology stock that you're buying. And you're thinking, well, what is it that I know that that person doesn't know? And yes, they've also heard the Buffett argument. In fact, they've probably met Buffett saying that, no, no, you don't want to sit in the, in, in, in the arena. You want the, dest the distance from it to, to, to get the proper perspective. Yes, they've also heard that argument, right? So um, that's, you want to answer the question, what is it that you do better than that person? If you can answer that question and you can convince yourself why your successes are not luck, and, and, and we all have a tremendous tendency to um, convince ourselves that we're not lucky when we win, but we're unlucky when we lose, right? So, which is, by the way, one of the most sobering things about running a fund. You can't do that. <laughs> There's an administrator that does the work for you. So you can't do the whole like, oh, I was not going to invest in China, so let's disregard that. Or, you know, all the woulda, coulda, shoulda, they disappear. No excuses, right? Because the, the money you manage don't want to hear excuses. They want to get returns. Sense. It makes sense. So it's understand your circle of competence, what you know, what you don't know. Understand if you have an investing edge, what you know, which other people don't know, and that could actually give you potential gains in the market. And if you can't answer those questions, then it's best to just index. and Do anything, do anything illegal to gain that edge. Yeah. First of all, it's wrong, but it'll, it'll, it'll also get you and it should get you in a world of trouble, right? And I think that's, maybe I'm being naive. I think that's less than it was just the technology of catching it has gotten so much better. That's been great stuff. Um, comment your thoughts below, guys, if you have any thoughts, any questions for Lars, because um, we'd love to hear from you guys. If you did find value in this video, feel free to give it a big thumbs up. And with that being said, if you haven't joined the investing family yet, feel free by hitting that subscribe button turning that notification bell on first link in the description below for our vip membership group and also our ultimate investing strategy course and with that being said thank you guys so much for watching i hope you all have an incredible day and i'll see you in my next video invest safe <laughs>